Whenever I was at Harding, one of the things that I always kind of dreaded was figuring out which of my classes were going to be total snooze fests. And unfortunately, that happened more than I wanted it to be. And surprisingly, that happened with even majors only Bible classes. I remember one time sitting in the lecture of one of my classes and I was fighting everything in me to stay awake. And I'm like, surely I can't be the only one feeling this way. And I turn around, <laughs> oh, it's a sight to behold. Basically the whole class was like really fighting it. There was a guy in the back who like was like this. And he did one of those like, <laughs> like woke himself up in the middle of class. And I'm like, what's going on? I mean, this content, this topic is like the most important kind of stuff that we could be talking about. Why are we all having a hard time staying awake in this? I mean, our professor could have been saying the most profound stuff imaginable, but we were all completely tuning him out. And how often do we do that? How often do we tune other people out? I know it never happens in sermons, right? <laughs> never once have I noticed that. But <laughs> situations come up where you're talking to somebody and you may be making eye contact with them, right? And you might nod occasionally, but your brain is like way off somewhere else as they're talking. Or take to the internet and whenever someone posts things that we may not agree with or think is just ridiculous to believe, we might unfollow that person or unfriend that person because we don't even want to hear their perspective. Or I know of people, adults even, who have gotten in front of other people, literally stuck their hand out and said, talk to the hand whenever they didn't want to talk to somebody and giving the cold shoulder or something like that. What is it that makes us tune other people out? Sometimes it could be the uh, content aspect of it. It could be people talking way too long. But I really believe the biggest reason why we tune people out is in our mind, we feel like what they're saying, or maybe in our mind who they are, we think of them as irrelevant. We don't think that somebody who's not on the same level of competence or thinks like I do on these things or is just totally out of touch with reality in the times, we may not want to give our time to listen to that person. And if you feel that way about other people, I think that needs to inform the way that we interact and talk with other people. And I'm gonna be honest, in our time and in our culture, we have a lot going against us to keep people's attention. For instance, I found out from a study that the average attention span for a human, get ready for this, is 8.5 seconds. Some of you may have thought I was going to say minutes. No, to put that in perspective, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. We are losing to the snack that smiles back. So this means that the average person is going to give us roughly 8.5 seconds to say something relevant, to hook them in, to keep a conversation going. And businesses, companies, they're starting to realize this. If you look closely at TV shows and movies, there's normally pretty quick changing camera angles to keep people's attention. The digital content that's taking the world by storm these days 
are things like TikTok, YouTube shorts, Instagram stories. They are short form videos that people can just keep scrolling and keeping that attention span going. So just simply from the nature of our brains in this culture, that's a problem uh, to try to keep people's attention. But on top of that, in terms of a content perspective, Christianity and really organized religion on the whole is being seen as increasingly irrelevant. So with that being said, how do we as a church that I'm hoping that we care about sharing the gospel with as many people as possible, how do we possibly share the gospel in a time in which people just don't have much space to listen in general? And secondly, whenever the content is something that they may think is irrelevant. That's what we're going to look at today. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 17, if you have your Bibles. We're going through a series on Acts called Church on Fire, looking at how spirit-empowered people of God took the good news of Jesus and spread it to the world. And I'll tell you, I love Acts chapter 17. It is probably one of the top 10 most influential chapters of my life because it fuels my hunger for missions. And not just that, it informs the strategy for me for missions. So in context here, Paul is in Athens. And while he's there, he's burdened by the sheer amount of idolatry that he sees there. He's, so he's walking through the streets and he's noticing it probably from the port all the way up to the Acropolis, that there are idols everywhere. And you can see the big statue of Athena that would be there. And Paul being Paul, as he's waiting for his contemporaries to join him in Athens, he's just casually debating people in the streets. <laughs> and in Athens, it's a very academic culture. They have conversations and discourse about all sorts of philosophical things. And two groups that he was debating in Acts 17 were the Epicureans and Stoics. And without nerding out too much on these people, a bird's eye view, the Epicureans, they were people who thought that pleasure was the chief good of a human life and pain was to be avoided at all costs. Sounds kind of like a culture that I know. And also, on the flip side, Stoicism they believed that pleasure in the way that the Epicurean thought of it, they thought it was a vice. And they thought actually enduring through pain was one of the most virtuous things you could do. And living a virtuous life was really the end game for the Stoics. And both of these groups had views of God that were very distant. They believed that God was too transcendent really to care much or interact much with the material world. And Interestingly, the Stoics actually referred to God as the Logos, as the Word, in the same way that the New Testament refers to Jesus being the Word from the beginning. Although they understood the Word to be a very impersonal, not really caring too much about the material side of things. And so as Paul is debating these people, they call him a babbler, which this is just really funny. The idea of a babbler in the Greek language is like a bird that is hopping along the ground and like pecking up little seeds as it goes. Metaphorically, what they're talking about with Paul is that he's somebody who's kind of in the marketplace, just kind of pecking little bits of philosophy here and there and trying to throw it together in some kind of coherent way, but really he isn't. And it's really an assault on his intelligence. So other places he was persecuted by physical violence 
Here he is being persecuted in this academic city by ridicule. And people had a propensity to tune him out. So in verse 19, this is where we're going to pick up. It says, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a council of about 100 members or so. And these were like the high up Greek elite people. They were the ruling council. They had trial courts uh, in Athens. And so he's talking to these really high up people. And they ask him, may we know what this new teaching is that you were presenting. You were bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. <laughs> Again, that sounds a little bit like a culture that I know. Sounds like what the whole internet has evolved into. But they were just feasting on new knowledge. They would just love to hear a good quote. They wanted to just keep getting these new ideas funneled in. And what's fascinating is how Paul enters this specific scene with the gospel. And without nerding out too much, because I totally can for this. And so you're going to have to take my word for it and then look it up later. But what Paul does and how he structures his argument, he's following the logic that Stoics use in their arguments for God. Like he's almost mimicking it, which is super interesting. And he also uses a common form of Greek speech argumentation that is structured with a compliment to start, then sharing some context or background leading to the points that he's gonna say. His thesis, what his main point is, proofs to support his thesis, and then finally a conclusion or an appeal for someone to do something. And if you look at what he says here in Acts 17, that's exactly what he's doing. So Paul's no dummy, <laughs> even in the way that he is talking to these people. He is using their own form and structure. So in verse 22, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So there's that compliment, that's buttering them up, right? For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So there's the background setting up the story. And the altar that he's referring to, Athenians, again, they have a very open culture. So they, they have an altar dedicated just in case there's a God that they don't know about. So what Paul is doing is he is using his surroundings and their worldview to enter into a conversation about this God that they don't know. So he says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So here's the thesis. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And God does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Which at this point, he probably would have gotten a couple amens from the people he's talking to because they believe that God is someone that doesn't need anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So this is where he might start diverging a little bit from their beliefs. Because remember, they believe that God is a distant God. But he's saying, no, the Logos is actually much closer than you can even know. 
And then this is just brilliant by Paul, how he ends this in 28. He quotes two of their own authors, two of their own poets to prove his point. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So the first quote is from a 6th century poet named Epimenides. Say that five times fast. Um, But here, the quote from one of his works, to give a little bit more context, this is the character Minos, who is a sort of demigod that addresses the supreme god Zeus. So this is talking about Zeus. They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. So if you think about this with the context, what Paul is doing is he is taking a very well-known Greek work and using it to talk about Christ. In the same way that they were talking about Zeus, that they thought they were going to kill him. They thought they had him, but he lives forever and ever and ever. And in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is pointing that out, saying that that is Christ. And then he's using this quote to sort of demolish the idea of idols. In him we move and have our being. So God is the one that fashions us. God is the one that gives us life. It's not the other way around. We do not construct God in our image. We don't make God out how we want to be. And then the second one, we are his offspring. It was very common. That poet's name was Eratus. It was very common for Greeks to think of of themselves as as offspring of the gods. And they'd even consider whatever they believed about the supreme version of God, whether that's Zeus or someone else, they would refer to that person as father. So uh, Paul, what he's doing, he is using Greek logic and a Greek worldview to prove his point about this God that they do not know. And then he continues in verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, which that is an interesting thought in itself. Uh, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And the resurrection of the dead, that's a hard concept for Greeks because they have such a dualistic view of the world that the material is bad and the spiritual plane, whatever that is, is good. So this idea of our bodies actually being physically raised, that's, that's a tough thing to understand. And in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, right? But others said, we want to hear more from you on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So in this story, we are seeing Paul's strategy to reach people. Paul structures his words in common forms and logic of his audience. He uses his surroundings and their own worldview to connect the kingdom with them. And he even quotes their own sources to prove his point. This results in them, I'm sure many of them still thinking that he is a babbler, but a number of them coming to know Jesus, including one of the high-up Greek officials, at least one of them, there could have been more. And if you want to see a little bit 
behind the curtain of Paul's thinking of this, go to 1 Corinthians 9. Because I think he explains his mission strategy in 1 Corinthians 9, 22. He says, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He has become all things to all people so that by all possible means, as many people as possible through his life, through the Holy Spirit working through him, as many people as possible can come to know Christ. And that principle is very clearly applied here in Acts chapter 17. And really, I think this principle first comes from God. (laughs) Because if you think about it, God throughout human history has shown up in ways that make sense to the people. If you look at scripture itself, it is God's words through the words contextualized through people to make sense to them using their language, using their metaphors, their expressions. And what the miracle of scripture is, though scripture was written to a specific group of people in a specific time with specific issues, it transcends culture and time. That is true and authoritative and It informs how we should live our lives, even to this day. It is living and active. That's the miracle of Scripture. And this is also seen in the living word that is Jesus, who is God contextualized as a human being for us to fully be able to see what God is like. And if you look at the way that Jesus lived his life and how he taught his parables and the metaphors that he used, it was all very relevant things for his time. And then we see this with Paul, too. And all of this today, it teaches us that meeting people where they are helps people meet Jesus. This means that we cannot expect to have a super big impact on another person's life. We can't expect them to come to know our values and think the same way that we do on everything, to have the same view of Scripture that we do, to to believe that Jesus is the Lord of the universe It's going to be really hard to do that expecting them to come to our understanding. Instead, we need to first meet them where they are. For instance, if Paul came into Athens and he was only, the proofs that he was using was just pointing at scripture and saying, hey, look, it says it here. That wouldn't have been super convincing because they're not at the same starting point that it was an authoritative work of God. So, and similarly, I think gone are the days in our culture where simply Appealing to scripture is going to be a convincing point for the masses. I mean, if, if your attempt to reach someone is just opening scripture and pointing at a verse and saying, look, this is what it says, that's not going to really do anything. It's going to fall on deaf ears. I shouldn't say that. It can do something because the spirit of God can move in ways that we can, beyond what we can think. But if we start with just only pointing to scripture whenever they are not yet there, <laughs> to believe that it is even an authoritative work, it's gonna fall on deaf ears. I am, some, I, I think I was noticing that primarily last year while I was at Lipscomb, whenever I was teaching something from a text, it was like the moment that I opened up scripture, a lot of times my students would kinda like check out a little bit, unless I set it up in a way that connected to something that was going on in their life. And then they were interested. It's just, it's a different time. It's a different culture. And before 
appealing to scripture and scripture alone, right? People have to get there first. We, you need to have the same starting point. And in fact, I would say most people's view of scripture today is archaic, that it's uh, potentially or is oppressive, which to some degree, <laughs> scripture is about, you know, modeling your life after Christ. And that is oppressive to the way that I, I want to live my life. So what do we do? How do we, if we're following in the steps of Paul and really Jesus, how do we be a contextualizing church? How do we meet our community where they are? How can we be a church that meets our neighbors and meets our friends and meets their needs? If you ask good foreign missionaries where they started with their mission effort, beyond like, yes, they're first called by God and they have their own deep spiritual formation in Jesus, where they start is by learning their people that they're reaching. They go on survey trips, they learn the language, they learn the norms, they learn the values, they learn what makes people tick. Because it's so important to know your audience. Because if we just come in guns blazing and we're saying, hey, we expect you to conform to our methods and our culture and the way that we do things, that's colonization, that's not contextualization. And colonization <laughs> misrepresents God and puts a barrier in the way for people to come to know God. It's not effective in terms of building a bridge between God and a specific culture. And church, I believe that all of us, every single one of us in here who says Jesus is the Lord of your life, we are missionaries, all of us. That means we take the mission of God extremely seriously. And that means we need to know our mission field really well. This means we need to learn the language. And if that's, I'm not just saying like English, Spanish, French sort of thing. I'm saying learn the popular idioms. Learn the slang that people use. Learn how people communicate with each other, the methods of communication. Learn the values of other people. Learn what they care about, what they live their life by. Learn the popular poets of the day. Maybe there is a way to listen to Taylor Swift for the glory of God, <laughs> to, help, to help connect with other people, to build a bridge with relationship. Because whenever we do that, that's whenever a community starts to realize, oh, you do care about me. Oh, you do see me. You do value me as a person and it shows them that we are trustworthy people that we're not just you know going to come in and force our way on them i know of people who have watched an entire series of a show of something they hated like totally hated the show for the sake of being able to relate to one person that's extremely hard to relate to i know of people who have learned an entire language to help meet their neighbor that doesn't know english very well Last year, while I was at Lipscomb, whenever I overheard my students talking about a particular show or uh, artist that they really liked, I would go and look up like one of their songs and just know some of the lyrics in the back of my mind. And whenever I'd overhear them talking about something and I could slide in lyrics of that song to them, it just made them be like, what? <laughs> you know that song? And I'll, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating this the difference that I saw in those handful of students and how much they listened to me after that point was astounding. Just because I showed that I cared enough to care about the things that they do. And I say all of this, and I wanna pump the brakes a little bit. 
don't hear me say this, all this stuff, and take it as a justification to do all the stuff that you want to do, watch all the stuff you want to watch because it's under the guise of I'm relating to people. If you're, if you're doing something that is potentially destructive for your life, get away from that. <laughs> don't even flirt with it. Don't even flirt with the darkness. If there is something you know you shouldn't watch and you shouldn't listen to, do not say, I'm doing it for the sake of relating to people. If you're somebody who struggles with drunkenness, your contextualization doesn't look like going to a bar to try to evangelize, right? There's wisdom that is needed here. However, we do need to follow in the way of Jesus and know our neighbors. So let's be a church that builds cultural currency with people. Build that relational common ground so that we can help connect people to the kingdom. Whenever I spent a summer in Mozambique, one of the really fun aspects of it for me was going to all of these different churches. And the missionaries that I worked with, they, they have this approach, they have this Acts 17 approach of empowering people and contextualizing to a culture, speaking the same truth of Jesus that has always existed, but in ways that make sense to the people. And man, the church just like took off like wildfire. There are so many churches being planted over there all the time. And it, it was so fun to see how each church did church differently. Like some of them, they just had testimony times where they stood up and shared what God's done for them in the week. Some of them had whole dance, worship dance routines. And it was just really beautiful to see. And I was so uncomfortable <laughs> out of my element, but I was there doing it anyway and, you know, clapping along. Um, and it was amazing just to see how, how they did it. The songs that they were singing, they took similar sounding songs that were in that culture and then just put Jesus into it. And it, it worked really well for them. And this was all from empowering local people to be the leaders of the church. And it was just, it was awesome. And I say that to say we went to another church that was from a different church plant, a different ministry. And it was like a portal back to the United States because the service looked like a very traditional Church of Christ service. People were sitting down. I mean, this is the same community, right? Where there's this super expressive culture, you know, people dancing in the middle of service. These same people are sitting in pews, completely silent. They're singing four-part harmonies. They're singing Americanized songs, many of which were even in English. Like there's no way that most of them even understood what they were singing. And whenever, before we walked into that church, the missionaries we were with said, do not clap at all here. They can't do that. So it just kind of hurt my heart. I mean, again, Jesus can still work and moves in churches like that. But what's fascinating is that church had a really hard time multiplying. That church had a hard time growing and growing. Whereas the approach that the missionaries I was with, I mean, it was booming. There was one day, if you go to that next slide, uh, there was one day that we baptized 110 people in a day. It was amazing. And I, I don't say that to say I had any part of it. I didn't, besides me actually being in there. I think I baptized the most people because I couldn't speak their language. So when they came in, I only said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> Next. Um, so like, 
I don't even remember how to say hello in that language, but I do remember Kinawu, Batisani, and China, Atumwane, Mwananepa, and Takatifu, because I said it so much. It was, it was an amazing experience. And it was amazing to see how they empowered the local people to be the leaders of the church, and the church just took off like wildfire. And I see that, and I think we can be that church too. I think we can be that church that multiplies. And the gospel truth, it hasn't changed. The truth of God has remained the same throughout time. Like God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But time and time again, the people of God, people who look like Jesus, have looked to new solutions, new methods, new ideas to help build a bridge with their current context. That may have looked like the Reformation, taking scripture from only being in Latin to putting it into the common language of the people so that they could read scripture for themselves. Up to today, where there are Christian digital content creators that are trying to reach people through the internet because that's the platform that most people are on, right? People have found ways to build bridges. So I pray that we as individuals, that we as a church, we know our mission field well and to seek to meet people where they are and to grow in relationship and in love with them so that the gospel can be expressed in ways that connect so deeply with them and doesn't fall on deaf ears. I pray that we be a contextualizing church for this time and this place right here in Franklin, Tennessee to lay the groundwork that allows for people to truly hear the beauty of the gospel of Jesus because the gospel is what changes lives. Jesus is what changes lives. So anything that we can do to help prepare a person's heart to receive that, we ought to be doing it. Because whenever people experience the love of God, our lives change, our desires change, our communities change, and our world changes. So like Paul, by all means possible, may we be people that meet our community where they are so that they can come to know Jesus. We're going to spend some time this morning. If you have any needs or if you have any prayer requests, we're going to have people lined up around the room. And they would love to pray for you and help you with anything you're going through right now. And if you have a desire to get baptized and give your life to Christ this morning, we can make that happen as well. Just please let us know. And I want to end um, with a prayer asking God to help us identify people in our communities that we need to reach and, and give us action steps of how we can do that. Lord, you, you are one that has met us where we are. You are one that has contextualized yourself to our situation. You became like us in every way. And Lord, I pray that you help us to be people and a whole church that seeks to contextualize, that seeks to reach people in ways that can make sense to them. I pray that you help us live lives to where people don't tune us out, but want to know more. And Lord, I pray that this morning that you put on our hearts maybe a neighbor or a friend, a peer, a coworker, someone that 
do you really want to come to know Jesus? And I pray that through our lives, beginning first with a loving relationship, showing how much we care about these individuals, I pray that you help us be the bridge between you and that person. Help us to be your ambassadors. Help us to reflect Christ in everything that we do so that people see us whenever they do that, that they actually see you. Pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.